SurgeryAssociatesOfSD.com. He's Craig Maddock. I'm John Gaskins. About halfway through our show here on Fox Sports 98.1, AM 1230, KWSN.com. Free KWSN mobile app on your smart speaker or on your phone. About an hour from now, if you missed it, we'll play the impassioned Stu Whitney and his reaction to how the bad boy Pistons were portrayed in that documentary about the Chicago Bulls the other night. And he does admit uh, it was a mistake for them to walk by the Bulls, walk off the court after they'd been swept in the Eastern Finals. Ding dong, the witch was dead. Something Bill Ambeer doesn't apologize for, but Isaiah Thomas kind of is. That's been one of the big stories in sports. We'll bring back Stu's interview at about 525. Uh, Also, Vikings, Packers, there's not a lot of controversy involving what the Vikings did with their draft. Nor really about not getting Trent Williams. It just continues to appear that he chose the Niners and just didn't want to go to the Vikings. All things and offers seemingly equal. And we'll get to Matt's thoughts on the three Jackrabbits who signed undrafted free agent contracts and other local figures who are going to be trying out for NFL teams whenever we're allowed to get together again as a species. But let's start, Zim, with uh, the Vikings. They got an A almost across the board by those who grade NFL drafts. How did you feel as a Vikings fan about how they did? Um, It was fun to watch the draft knowing that my team had 15 picks. (laughs) You know, I didn't have to sit and wait as long as usual. Um, But you do always kind of wonder, you know, the quantity versus quality, how that's going to play out. So many of those picks at the end, are they going to amount to anything? Who knows? Um, But I did like what they did. Um, Needed a wide receiver needed defensive backs, needed an offensive lineman. I mean, they were able to address a lot of their needs. And, you know, how many of those guys are going to be impact players? Who knows how many of them are even going to be, you know, those early picks are going to be good players. You don't know. But I like what they did. Uh, I'm usually kind of a, you know, take the best guy available sort of thing, don't necessarily draft for need. But I feel like the Vikings were kind of able to do a little bit of both with some of those early picks. So, uh, you know, it, it makes me feel a little bit better about, their situation and that, you know, we've talked so much on this show about is the window closing for the Vikings, you know, how much longer can they consider themselves contenders while some of their key players keep getting older. And then, you know, the Stefan Diggs trade happens and, you know, who knows what's going to happen with Kirk Cousins, all these other situations. Uh, I feel like they maybe, you know, cracked the window open a little further or, or at least maybe bought themselves some time to where they're not necessarily this team that's kind of, you know, still thinks that the window of contention is open when it, actually no longer is. Well, Matt, I think you might be like other Vikings fans. You liked what the Vikings did in the draft, and you liked what the Packers uh, did in the draft, drafting a backup quarterback number one and a backup running back at number two. Yeah, that was uh, interesting to see. Um, I can kind of see why some Packers fans are trying to rationalize it because, you know, just all things being equal, it seems very similar to what they did when they drafted Aaron Rodgers. I think Favre was 35 when they drafted Rodgers. And now Rodgers is 36 when they draft this other guy. And you hear people saying things like, well, you know, the best time to look for a quarterback is when you already have a quarterback. So like, well, that's all fine and good, but there's no indication that this guy is, is, is anywhere near the same player that Aaron Rodgers was. I mean, I know they were taken in similar spots in the draft, but if you remember back that long ago, I mean, Aaron Rodgers was – a lot of people thought he should have been the number one overall pick. A lot of people thought he was the most talented player in the draft. This guy seems far more questionable. 
And I think regardless of how much we make of, you know, is Aaron Rodgers really a diva and, and all those sorts of things? Is he a guy that holds grudges or doesn't get along with his coaches or GMs, all that kind of stuff? He did say, you know, in the days leading up to the draft, like, well, it'd be nice if we, you know, would, would draft a position player for once. They finally do, and it's his potential replacement. I don't see how they, how anyone would have thought that's a good idea. I'm not saying that he's going to demand a trade or anything like that, but it just, it just at, at best, it makes the Packers look pretty tone deaf, and at worst, it makes it look like maybe they don't know exactly what they're doing. Now, now Matt Zimmer joining us from the Yargus. Craig and John here. Fox Sports 98.1, AM 1230, and KWSN.com. Not that I would ever believe it was it was part of their rationale for what they did for or not for Aaron Rodgers, but how do you feel about those, especially Packers apologists, who may contend that, hey, this will light a fire under him. This is what he needs, like Tom Brady when the Patriots drafted Jimmy Garoppolo at the end of round two, but still felt like they were drafting his heir apparent, and then he goes out and wins two of the next three Super Bowls. Do you buy any of that? No. I don't think Aaron Rodgers needs a fire lit beneath him. He's, you know, still one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. I know last year was a down year by his standards, and there are all sorts of potential red flags or warning signs that maybe he's not the same quarterback. But I don't think pissing him off with your draft choices, not giving him the kind of help that he's looking for, is going to somehow motivate him to play better. I think that's, like you said, being a Packers apologist and trying to rationalize poor decision-making more than anything else. Well, Matt, you follow South Dakota State University, and uh, the Jacks had a couple, three players that were that won, uh, uh, won to Atlanta, Mikey Daniel, Christian Rosaboom to the Rams, and then Luke Sellers uh, to Detroit. Let's talk about, first of all, Daniel and uh, Rosaboom. What, what are their chances of making the team? Well, if you listen to Mikey Daniel, he seems to think he's got a great shot of not just catching on to being on the active 53-man roster. Uh, I was really surprised at how optimistic and confident he was when I asked him about it. And, uh, you know, it could be somewhat that maybe, you know, the I mean, the, if a team wants to sign you and bring you in and they haven't drafted you, I think to some degree they want to tell you what you want to hear to get you to agree to do that. Uh, but he's been having, you know, one-on-one conversations with the head coach, Dan Quinn, and the position coaches, and they've been telling Mikey, you know, you can play fullback. You can play running back. And, uh, you know, I'll take a little bit of credit myself. Back when Mikey was still just a regular running back at SDSU as a junior, I started telling people, you know, he reminds me a lot of C.J. Ham. He's not going to be a, an every-down running back in the NFL, but I could see him making that transition, and that's exactly what he's done. And it makes sense to me that NFL teams would see him as that kind of guy, especially when you think, you know, C.J. Ham's a Pro Bowl fullback right now. But a couple of years ago, he was the Vikings special teams MVP. And that's another thing Mikey Daniel had a big role in at SDSU. He's on almost was on almost all of the Jackrabbits special teams units. So the Falcons do have a fullback already. Uh, I don't know exactly what their depth is like in their running back room or those sorts of things. Uh, but if, if what Mikey says is true, that they really view him as the kind of guy who can come in and, you know, be sort of a, you know, a versatile, a guy who can be, you know, multiple, fill multiple positions with one roster spot, then he's got a great shot. And even if he doesn't make the 53-man roster, I think he would obviously have that opportunity to stick on the practice squad and work his way up. Um, with Christian Roosevelt, I'm, I'm a little less sure of what to make of his situation in that, you know, his first three years of his career were so great that we all kind of expected going into his senior year he'd be getting a lot more attention and maybe be a potential NFL draft pick. 
Uh, there were scouts coming and watching uh, SDSU at games at practices all season long. And the, the, the fact that you didn't hear much about it kind of made, gave me the suspicion that maybe teams were cooling on him um, because, you know, when, when teams were coming to, to watch Dallas Goddard throughout his senior year, it was constant, this constant feedback, like, oh, man, this guy's awesome. We can't wait to draft this guy. I kind of got the feeling that the more NFL teams saw Roseboom, the more they questioned whether or not he could play at that level. And the fact that he didn't get drafted, didn't get invited to the Combine, didn't get invited to the Senior Bowl, I think maybe plays into some of that. That doesn't mean he's not going to get a chance. Uh, the important thing for Roseboom was just to get this opportunity. He's going to get into a camp. He's going to get a chance to show him what he can do. He missed out on that opportunity to have a pro day like so many of the other guys have done. I mean, look at Dennis Gardek, the former linebacker from USF, who's entering his third year with the Cardinals. He is in the NFL specifically because of his pro day. He went to the SDSU pro day and absolutely killed it. People had no idea who he was. And that day, he was so great that every NFL team that was there was like, holy cow, who is this guy? Now he's in his third year in the NFL. This year, without the pro days, a lot of guys missed that opportunity. Roseboom's a perfect example of a guy who was an extremely productive player in college for whatever reason that they didn't like him, that they didn't think he had the measurables, they didn't think he was big enough, fast enough, whatever. If he gets into a camp now with the Rams, he's going to have that opportunity to show, hey, maybe maybe you didn't like what you saw on film or, or whatever, but put me on the field with other NFL players and I'll prove to you that I can compete. And the Rams are a team that, they don't have. They lost, I believe, one of their best linebackers to free agency. Uh, they don't have a lot of experience at linebacker. They've got a lot of young guys uh, on their roster at that position. So I think he does have a chance uh, to stick there. And then the really interesting one is Luke Sellers, uh, the who was SDSU's actual fullback this year um, when Mikey Daniels was playing running back. Luke hardly ever touched the ball throughout his career. He scored one touchdown in his career. Uh, was essentially a, a, an extra offensive lineman in the backfield. Uh, but he's pretty fast and athletic for a guy as big as he is. He's 250 pounds. He's just a bowling ball. And uh, he was a really, really impressive blocker. Uh, I, I really felt like his senior year in particular, he kind of finally blossomed into the kind of player you'd always heard that he could be. Again, he flew under the radar because, you know, how many fans notice a guy who's just out there lead blocking or who's back there pass protecting for the quarterback. He didn't get the ball very much. Uh, but I don't know if there's ever been a player in the six years I've been covering SDSU uh, who was as well-liked by his teammates, who it was, as, as, as who would, he would hear someone as often talking about, you would ask somebody on the offense, you know, who's the guy we don't know about or who's the guy who's going to break out or who's one of your favorite Luke Seller's name always came up. His teammates absolutely loved that guy. Talked him up throughout his senior year and, uh, you know, who knows what Detroit is looking for? You know, Zach Zeno was there for a couple of years, and they always talked about a fullback situation, and they never tried him there. He's obviously not the same player as Luke Sellers, but I just, you know, what 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 his chances are of sticking there probably depend on how much the Lions want to use a fullback. And uh, we're seeing now with the CJ Hams and some of the, the guy in San Francisco with the goofy name—I can't think of it up top of my head—those guys are are kind of bringing back uh, the traditional fullback that we knew from the '80s and '90s into football. And if that continues to become a trend, guys like Mikey Daniel and Luke Sellers are going to have more opportunities. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to see if the Lions like him enough and feel like they want to move in that direction where he would have a chance to stick on that team too. Kyle, good, just check. I think it's just check as the fullback. I, think, I, don't, you know? I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, Matt Zimmer of the Argus joining us as he does every Tuesday at about this time. Uh, he also covers Augustana football 
would love to hear what he thinks about Jake Lucina, whose father Corbin played for the Vikings. And now here's Jake as the best center in Division Two, signing that free agent deal. And he was with us yesterday. Was a no-brainer to sign with the Vikings over the Raiders and anybody else who talked to him. And we'll get Zimmer's take on him. Also, uh, Matt always has interesting opinions about these sort of things. The handshake deal. Pistons, Bulls, tempers, hatred. Pistons walk out. Is it really that big of a deal that teams shake hands in those situations or at all? Uh, we'll hear from Matt Zimmer. More on Fox Sports 98.1, AM 1230, and KWSN.com. Can't hear the show on the radio? No problem. We're always live at kwsn.com and on the free, easy-to-download KWSN mobile app. The KWSN Fan Line brought to you by Tires, 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 your give-you-more tire and automotive store with two stores to serve you. Go to tires3.com. He's Craig Maddock. I'm John Gaskins. Top of the hour. How quickly does Aaron Rodgers want to get out of Green Bay? Interesting report from a guy that covered the Packers for, still does, over 35 years. Quite insightful commentary that isn't surprising. Similar to what our Packer pal Bart Winkler from the Fan of Milwaukee told us on Friday. And more on this Handshake deal. Pistons, Bulls, one of the biggest things. There were so many things that came out of parts three and four on the last dance on the four-letter on Sunday. I mean, the wild life of Dennis Rodman, uh, more of just Michael Jordan's pettiness and tenacity, and Phil Jackson, this out-there, seemingly goofball hippie head coach who knew how to press everybody's buttons almost uh, masterfully. And Zen Master. But the, there was this thing about the Pistons Bulls rivalry that kind of carried over into yesterday. Matt Zimmer of the Argus joining us here on Craig and John, Fox Sports 981, AM 1230, and KWSN.com. As you know, your former boss, current co worker, Stu Whitney, big Pistons fan. I was actually surprised. You know, he defends a lot of the criticism that the Pistons have been taking for the way that they were portrayed overall in that documentary, in that rivalry, where they were the bullies to the Bulls, and they did beat and beat up the Bulls for a couple of years before the Chicago paid their dues and finally got the better of them, swept to them in the playoffs. And then, you know, as we now see, Isaiah, Bill Ambeer, all those guys, seven seconds left getting swept in the Eastern Finals and the end of an era, they walk off right in front of the Bulls, and most people think it's Bush League, they're babies, Horace Grant from the Bulls called them a bunch of B-words, uh, then we learned that, hey, wait a second, the documentary didn't say that, didn't mention Michael Jordan was calling the Pistons bad for basketball uh, the day before that game, and they were reacting to that. Um, I assume you watched all of this. What do you make all of this? No, I haven't been watching any of that documentary. You're serious? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> what, what the hell else would anybody be watching? No right kidding. Now? Okay. I've been waiting on pins and needles, and I don't even care about the NBA hardly. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, no, it's but I've I've been I'm serious. I have been waiting, you know, on pins and needles for it because that was a time when I did watch the NBA quite a bit, and it's the most fun part to me of watching that is kind of remembering uh, the '80s and '90s, the Jordan Bird Magic era of the NBA, and how fun it was, and uh, how colorful the personalities were, you know, and remembering, uh, like you mentioned, Dennis Rodman, Michael Jordan, and and all that kind of stuff, and and the Pistons too, and uh, I. I 
I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's like a huge deal that a, a team decides they don't want to shake hands or whatever. Um, but it would make a little more sense if there had been something obvious that had happened on the court, you know, that had led to it. Like the Pistons are it's kind of generally agreed are the ones who essentially play dirty, who spent the entire, you know, the whole Jordan rules thing. The rule was anytime he has the ball and goes to the basket, you're supposed to deck him and beat the crap out of him. So you're the ones that are playing dirty all the time. They finally beat, beat you in a series and beat you soundly four games to nothing. You know, why are you holding a grudge? You know, mm-hmm. they, they finally slayed the dragon. They beat you. Take your medicine. You know, take your L like a man, as they say. And it's just like, again, if there had been something, you know, if, if uh, Jordan had bit, punched one of those guys towards the end of the game or there had been, you know, any, anything sort of that the Bulls had done that was considered really Bush League during the actual series, maybe I could understand it, but, but they're just basically, you know, that whole excuse that, well, Jordan said this in the papers, like that kind of strikes me as a after the fact excuse to try to rationalize it. I think they were just sore losers. I mean, it's pretty apparent that Bill Lambeer was a genuinely terrible person, at least during his playing career. And Isaiah Thomas, I don't think was a whole lot better. Um, you know, if, if Stu or any other Pistons fans want to try to convince themselves that it was something other than that, that's fine. But I think they're kind of on their own. It's pretty much universally accepted that those guys were pricks and that they <laughs> deserved what they got and that everyone thinks they were acting Bush League by not shaking their hands when they went through the line. In Stu's defense, he did, he did say he didn't agree with the handshaking thing. But, and, of course, it's interesting driving that conversation forward because who knows when we'll see handshakes again in, in public form right. because of COVID. Right. I don't know. But, um, but, you, but you kind of mentioned, so did you think it was an overblown part of it because you don't think the handshake thing is as prominent of a thing as it should be or just i don't know i i I think it made for good for you know good quotes on the show yeah you know horse horse grant's quote that was funny you know i mean again one of the reason this documentary is so awesome is because of frankly the fact that they're not censoring it that we're allowing getting to see these people you know in an uncensored how they are sort of format Uh, i've never really liked michael jordan as a person and I find myself liking him a lot more watching this documentary. It's it's kind of impressive to me seeing how, you know, arguably the greatest and most important and influential athlete that has ever lived in America is such a, uh, to see him humanized to such a great degree, you know, yeah. to have him openly talk about just, you know, what he was feeling and thinking and hear him be that candid talking about his experiences as not just as a player, but what he was going through, you know, as a person and how he was handling all this stuff that he was dealing with and, um, this Pistons thing is just another part of that. I, I don't think it's a huge deal. I think they acted immaturely or unsportsmanlike or whatever. Big deal. Those things happen all the time. Um, but it's definitely interesting and fun and entertaining to hear these guys, you know, kind of let their guard down and talk about these things that they experience from a much more human standpoint than the usual sort of buttoned up or uh, sanitized version of what we hear when someone is on a podcast or on a live interview or on their own Twitter account or anything like that. I mean, it's clear that there was a, you know, we don't really get to hear too many of our, our famous people, whether they're athletes, politicians, entertainers, or whatever, be as off the cuff as we're getting to see these people throughout this documentary. I think one of the biggest moves by management of the Bulls, I mean, they had the gonads to go out and get Dennis Rodman. After he beat the Bulls and beat them up and they hated each other, and then you have to bring Dennis Rodman in and be a Chicago Bull, I think that story is just totally amazing. 
I yeah, I think that's one of the most fascinating parts of it too. I don't know if this would be as nearly as good of a as entertaining of a thing without Dennis Rodman. Uh, I always liked him back when he. I shouldn't say I always liked him. I didn't much like him when he was on the Pistons, uh, but he hadn't quite fully, you know, embraced who he was going to become until he went to the Spurs and dyed his hair and got the tattoos and kind of became dated Madonna. That yeah, the kind of person we came to know him as when he did that. And I was a teenager as all this was going on, who, who did watch a lot of the NBA at the time. I thought he was great. I liked seeing who had that kind of against the grain personality. Um, but I always never was always sure like how great of a player was he really. You know, did the Bulls actually need him to win a championship when he was scoring four or five points a game? Yeah, I know. You know, un- unreal rebounding numbers and the defense and everything. But looking back, it's it's impressive to see a what a great teammate he was and how how well. Uh, his style of play fit that team that they they didn't need another guy who wanted his 10 15 shots a game they needed a guy who was going to play defense and rebound and let the other guys score the points but also seeing how Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen uh, were willing to accept him for who he was and more importantly how Phil Jackson was willing to accept him for who he was and sort of knew how to push the buttons how to get how to get out of Dennis Rodman, what they needed to, you know, let, letting him go on vacation for two days in the middle of the season, you know, uh, just everything that Phil did to sort of try to maximize the enigma that was Dennis Rodman. Uh, that's fascinating to watch and to, to listen to them talk about that. And also it's fascinating to, you know, sort of juxtapose that against what we see today, because it's funny watching this documentary and then you follow on Twitter because literally the entire world is watching this show at the same time. And you still occasionally see those, the basketball coach Twitter that comes on like, see, this is why Michael Jordan was the greatest because he worked really hard and he was a great teammate and everything. That stuff is all fine and good. But how often do those same voices also often say things about why, you know, things that Michael Jordan or Dennis Rodman would do are not what you're supposed to do. Michael Jordan's saying, yeah, there's no I in team, but there's an I in win. Yes. You know, that kind of, that kind of goes against the grain a little bit. You know, Dennis Robin being able to say right in the middle of the season, like, yeah, I'm going to peace out and go to Vegas for a couple of days. You know, those are obviously not things that we're used to seeing. And so I think that's why this documentary has just been so fascinating is because it, it's kind of shedding a light on, you know, just what an amazing team that was in how so many different personalities and so many different talents kind of came together for a little period there to create something that, you know, no disrespect to what the Golden State Warriors did a few years ago. I, I just don't think it's quite the same in most people's eyes. And the personalities and characters off the court mm. are as much of a reason for that as what they were able to do on the court. Yep, Jerry Krause dancing on the plane. And nothing is still funnier than fat guys dancing and uh, Scotty Pippen telling him to go sit down. Uh, Zim, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Yep, see you guys. Matt Zimmer, Argus, good stuff. If you missed it, podcast later at Marv's Body Shop podcast page, kwsn.com. Interesting remarks from a veteran Packers writer about Aaron Rodgers and Stu Whitney coming up next. Goodbye, Aberdeen. High school sports are as American as apple pie. And going to a game or meet is a chance to see the stars of tomorrow shine today. But as anybody